Easter, Resurrection Sunday, Christians gathering all over the world in churches and in uh, open fields and different places, having services like ours. And I am going to assume most of them are probably telling the Easter story, the story of that very first Easter when uh, the women went to the tomb and they were there to, to care for Jesus' uh, burial, and the, the, the stone is gone, and there's an angel saying something dramatic. He is not here. He is risen. And their shock and their wonder, and they run to the upper room, and they tell uh, the disciples that, that, that an angel said he's risen. His body is gone. And so the disciples begin, what's going on? And then there's disciples on this Emmaus road, and Jesus appears to them, and they come running back to the upper room, and they say, we've seen him alive. And Mary Magdalene says, I've seen him alive. And you have all of this uh, running here and there trying to figure out what's happening, and then suddenly Jesus stands before them in the upper room. What a moment that would have been. Amazing. And that basic Easter story is the core of really all of our hope. It's the core of what we are celebrating uh, today. And I certainly have done many messages on that. But today I want to come at the Easter message from a different perspective. I want to talk with you about the mess that required Jesus to die and to be resurrected in order to fix it. The backstory, the prequel, the things that, the conditions that were so terrible that it required the death of the Son of God to fix it. You know, you can tell a lot about how big a problem is by the solution that's required to fix it. So we look, for example, on, on, on D-Day, the Normandy landing, this incredible naval landing, itself is a testament to what a huge problem Nazi Germany was. You look at the Great Wall of China, a thousand miles of this massive wall, and the solution is an indication that northern invaders were a very big problem. You can look at the solution, and it tells you a little bit about how big the problem is. If the solution is the death of the Son of God and his resurrection from the dead, how big must the problem be? Huge, massive, and indeed it is. And our teaching series here at, uh, at our church for the last weeks and will be going on for some time, we're looking at a, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome. It's called Romans. And in this letter, Paul describes both the problem and the solution. And he does so eloquently. He does so for 16 chapters of his letter. But basically what Paul says is that our core problem is not our health, it's not our family, it's not our spouse, it's not our job or our boss, it's not the weather, it's not any of these conditions. Our core problem is us, and essentially is really God. Man's problem is God, and specifically that he is morally righteous and we are not. We are, the Bible says, sinners. We have violated his moral law. We have violated his moral nature. We stand, therefore, uh, with God in a relationship not of closeness, but of animosity. Specifically, God is angry at us. His justice demands punishment for sin. 
And this is what Paul now develops in Romans 1, and I just want to sort of quickly survey. We're going to key in on verses 24 and 25 of Romans 1. But just to get there a second, uh, what Paul says is this. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God, the anger of God, the justice of God is set against us because of our sin, because of our unrighteousness. And the evidence of that is that God has made a judgment upon us, that we all will, we all will die. And these are now things that are easy to prove in the world around us. For example, anybody here look better this year than they did last Easter? Okay, I see a few hands. Pride is a sin. Uh, and denial is a river in Egypt. Uh, but no, we are all decaying. You're all, we're, we're all going to look worse next Easter than we, do when, than we do today. And ultimately, we all die. And the Bible says the reason that we all die is that this is God's judgment against us for our sin against him. And of course, that Death is the, is the prelude itself to an eternal punishment, the Bible describes, against mankind, against sinners. And so we begin to realize, as you think about that, the scale of the problem. Again, your problem isn't your health, your problem isn't your family, your problem isn't your past, your problem is God. My problem is God as well. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And what we see Paul doing here is maybe anticipating the thought that you have as I talk about this. You might say to yourself, wait, that doesn't sound fair. Like, nobody ever told me that I, that, that God was set against me. I'm just sort of living my life. I'm a normal person. What do you mean God's set against me and there's wrath of God? Well, what Paul says here is actually God has been talking to you, friend, every single day. In the creation around us, this grandeur, this glory, <clears throat> this beauty in the world around us that we sort of get used to, right? We wake up, we drive to work or school, the sun is rising, we may notice it, we may not. We brew our coffee in the morning, we enjoy the flavor, we may notice it, we may not. We may go on a vacation to the beach, we may drive by Lake Michigan, we can see these beautiful things, the face of a child, whatever it is, and we see these, we get used to it, we think, oh yeah, this is the world that we live in, and what God says is, these are all ways that I am communicating to you that I am here and this is what I am like. In the scale of the universe, in the symmetry of the atom, in the beauty that we see all around us, God is, he's shouting to us, this is what I'm like, I am here. He's making noise. Now, I've illustrated it this way, I can't improve on it, so I'm just gonna do it again, okay? This is, all, this is a lot like my experience as a dad, and some of you may not know my story, but I got married when I was 44 after 25 years of praying for a wife and praying for children, and God gave me a wife and very quickly gave me children, and so I'm now a little, a little late to the party, the daddy party, but I am enjoying it thoroughly. 
Uh, so I've got two daughters, a four-year-old and a two-year-old. Now when I go home, rather than being quiet like it was for all those years in my bachelor pastor days, now there's, there's all kinds of activity in the house. And so I come in the door and, and it's such a joy to hear, Daddy, right? Ah, they come and they hug and they kiss and, and right away they want to play. And I say, no, we're going to memorize verses now. Uh, <laughs> No, I say, yes, let's play. And so they say, let's play hide and seek. And so I'm like, let's do hide and seek. And so I go, you girls hide. And so they go off and, and, they, you know, and they hide. And uh, in fact, this week we were playing it and we snapped this photo just to give an idea of the daily uh, cuteness that I get to experience. Uh, there's, there's my two-year-old hiding. Isn't that ingenious? <laughs> she has no future as a sniper, does she? <laughs> So, uh, so anyway, I, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, ready or not, here I come. And, you know, I'll say, hey, where are those girls? A half a second later, I hear, we're over here. <laughs> Why? They want to be found. They make noise because they want to be found. Why is God shouting every day through this creation? Every day in your eyes and ears and smells and touch, the experiences that we have in the sensory aesthetic world. Why is he doing that? He is doing that because he wants to be found. He wants you to connect somehow that sunrise and those stars and that moon and that face of the beautiful child with what he is like. He's making noise. Are you listening? Are you seeing? Well, the Bible says that in spite of the fact that God's making all this noise, in spite of the fact of all of this incredible evidence of his handiwork, mankind continues to deny him, continues to live in a way as if he isn't there. This is verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Mankind, over the generations, more and more, refusing to worship the one true God, wanting to live as if he was not there, wanting to live for something other than what we were made to live for, which is a worship relationship with our creator. No, man lives in denial of what is obviously true. And God is vastly more glorious and significant and wonderful than we are, but mankind doesn't want that. Not anymore. You say, well, why wouldn't we want that? Because our thinking has been broken. Like, like a boat that gets disconnected on a river from, the, from its moorings, it just slowly, further and further, drifts away from its from its uh, mooring, mankind's thinking over time more and more and more drifting away from the truth that God is there, that God is who we were made for, that God is the most glorious, significant being in all the world. He's the ultimate reality, that he made us for himself, that we were made for him. Mankind now denies it. And so our worship is wrong, our thinking is wrong, and ultimately our living is immoral and is wrong. And I just think of all the claims of, of the Bible, that's the easiest one to prove. I mean, just look at the world that we live in. Is it utopia? 
Is it, uh, you know, is, it, is it wonderful all the time? No, it's not. In fact, it's kind of like the opposite of that. Yes, there's some good times and there's some things that we enjoy, but this world is broken, isn't it? And just look into our community, look into the paper, look into your family, look into your heart, and what do we see? Not perfection, we see brokenness, we see pain. All kinds of evidences of man's departure from God. In fact, at the end of Romans 1, Paul lists 21 evidences that man has left the building, <laughs> that, uh, that we are living away from God. These include, these sound familiar to you maybe? Murder, strife, slander, deceit, pride, envy. In the list is disobedience to parents. And every parent said, amen, we are living in a broken world. My, my kids are broken. You ever think, why is, the, why is the world the way that it is? Why? Because we refuse to live in a worship relationship with the God who made us. And now verse 24, our key text here for our message here this Easter. Here's what he says. Therefore, okay, so connecting all of this man departing from God, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen, and indeed amen to that. So the bottom line is this, that in spite of God's glory, in spite of God's goodness, in spite of God's provision to us, in spite of his love to us, mankind refuses to live under God and wants freedom away from God. As one commentator says this, scripture is quite clear that the essence of sin is godlessness. It is the attempt to get rid of God. And since that is impossible, the determination to live as though one had succeeded in doing so. As Time Magazine declared some years ago, God is dead. Now we can say that all we want, he ain't dead, okay? But we wanna live as if he isn't. What a relief that there's no God that we're accountable to. Whew, let's eat, drink, and be merry. Now what this text tells us is that mankind, since, since man can't live without something to worship, mankind replaces God with something that he himself has made. He says here that we worship the creature rather than the creator. We worship the created thing rather than the creator. And the only way that we can do this is that we have to believe a lie. And I want to ask you today if maybe you're believing the lie. You say, well, what's the lie? Here's the lie. The lie is that there is something, some created thing, some material thing, something other than God that will satisfy the longings of my heart that will bring meaning to my life, that will solve the problem that I have. The lie is that there's something that isn't God that will do that. And we're all doing that. I can say that here today, and in all of our services all weekend, I can say, because there's a lot of people I don't know that attending this weekend, I can say, I don't need to know you, you're living for something. You're living for something. There is something that is your big deal that is like your ultimate thing. 
Because mankind cannot live without having something like that. And mankind has replaced God, a counterfeit God, a fake God. The Bible calls them idols. It is when I elevate something that is made, maybe even something that is good, but I elevate it to being an ultimate thing, a thing that now I'm worshiping, a thing that I am now living for. In fact, Paul highlights here that we do two things with our gods. We worship them and we serve them. Again, in the text, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served. See that? Worship, we, 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 we view it as the ultimate thing. And gods demand service. And even fake gods demand service. And so we find here that we trade gods, actually. Out with the real God, out with the glorious God, out with the God that made us, in with the thing that we are choosing now to make our God and to live for. That God, whatever it is in your heart, it's the thing that you are looking for. It's the thing that you're thinking about. It's the thing that you are placing your hopes and your dreams in. We venerate those things by constantly thinking about them. It's what we talk about most easily. It's where our mind goes when it has nowhere else to go. It's where my mind goes. All of these things are indications of what our actual God is. Think about where you happily give your time. Think about where you happily give your money. These are all things that are pointing at what our real God is. Now, you may be here today and say, I don't got a God like that. And then I go to your house to watch the ball game and we go down to your man cave. And here's this massive tribute to your favorite team, your favorite NASCAR driver, the deer you shot when you were 12 or whatever it is that thing that makes you feel like you're something, that you matter, that your life matters, everybody has them. It could be your family, it could be your job, it could be a relationship, it could be something that you hope to be true in your life that you're still seeking after. Whatever that thing is, that is your God. We have elevated them to a place of importance. And you may not view it as a God, but God views it as a God if, he, if you have replaced him, him with it. You get that? because I can't say it again. <laughs> God views that as a rival God, a fake God, and it is the essence of what godlessness is. It is, to, it is to punt God out of your heart and to put this thing in. Trace your time, trace your money, trace your thoughts, trace your fears, and they will lead you to the real God of your heart. I wonder today if you might be thinking, what is it? Who is it for you? It is not our world one massive testimony to how ultimately disappointing these fake gods prove to be. Why do we have so much despair in this world? Why is there so much like just global depression? Why do we have all of these incredible Problems, And it, what it turns out is that when man decides that he wants to be independent of God, we can sure make a mess of the place. And we have certainly made a mess of this world. Can anybody doubt that? And if you doubt that, I wish that you would walk with me a week in my shoes as a pastor. I've been a pastor for 25 years. Maybe like a, I don't know, there's other roles in, in the community probably that allow for this, but certainly being a pastor allows me to get behind the scenes in people's lives to get behind the, you know, the, the perfect Christmas card uh, family, uh, to get behind the scenes on the, the Facebook 
perfect Facebook posting families. Uh, you know, my experience in scrolling through uh, my Facebook posts is seeing people posting how, you know, ah, and I'm like, oh, no, it ain't. I know you, and I know what's going on. We want to project that we are all the time happy and everything is wonderful. But fake gods make for terrible slave masters. And they ultimately disappoint us. So, for example, if you live for money, the richest people in the world will tell you, you never have enough of it. If you live for the perfect family, your family will be unbelievably disappointing, especially your kids. Live for the approval of others and you will quickly be shocked at how little time people actually spend thinking about you. Live for beauty or the perfect body and you will be enslaved to the gym, eating disorders, or Botox. Live for career advancement and it will likely cost you your family. Live for possessions and you'll never have enough of them. Live for sex and no partner or porn will ever be enough. Live for politics and every four years your happiness is at tremendous risk. Live for the admiration of your spirituality and your self-righteousness will crush you and probably your kids as well. The point is this, you live for anything other than the one true God and in the end we despair because we ultimately die. And none of those gods go with us in the next life. I don't care if you are Pharaoh. None of them go with us. And none of them actually solve the actual problem that we have, which is the wrath of God forever. No amount of money will ever take care of the wrath of God against you forever. And so we see how these things, they, they ruin us in this life, they damn us in the next life, it's like drinking salt water, right? I'm thirsty, I'm gonna drink water. It's salt water, I don't care, I'm gonna drink. And what happens? I'm thirstier after I do it. That's, the, that's this world that we live in. No matter what it is, no matter what you're serving, if it's not the one true God, you end up thirstier on the other side. I love C.S. Lewis, Christian writer. He describes it this way so wonderfully. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Friend, is it possible that that thing, person, whatever it is that you are living for, deriving your meaning and purpose from, that you actually are missing out on something? That you are being far too easily pleased? And I love the analogy here. He says, we are like children who, are, who grow up in a slum and are just used to making mud pies. And somebody comes along and says, hey, how would you like to have a holiday at the ocean? How would you like to go to the beach? Have you ever made a sandcastle? Have you ever ran in the waves? Have you ever heard the lapping of the ocean waves? Have you ever felt the sun on your back like you do at the ocean? And the child's like, no, I'll just stay here making my mud pies in the slum. Might that be kind of what is going on for you? 
they may pick up my two-year-old daughter, since she's not attending the services today. In three years, I won't be able to do that probably. I've heard of pastors that they pay $5 for every time they use their child as an illustration. My kids are gonna be incredibly rich someday. <laughs> but if I could pick up my, on my two-year-old daughter, so uh, she's never been sledding, okay? And so we had all this snow, what was it like yesterday? I can't remember. Indiana weather, right? All four seasons in one day. That's what we're having right now. But uh, so we decided to go sledding. So we went to Lake County Fairgrounds. A lot of kids sled there. We went there. And uh, my, my older daughter, she's, she's a daredevil. Like she would jump out of a plane. She's four, no problem. My two-year-old is more uh, reserved, a little more bashful. She's more likely to grab our leg in a scary moment, you know, just to be safe. That's her. So Kiralee just goes right down the hill. Madeline stands at the, we had her, she was all bundled up, she's like this, you know. We said, Madeline, do you want to go down the sled? No. We said, look at all the other kids, they're going down, they're having such a good time. Look at your sister, she's going down, she loves it. No. We, I mean, we tried everything we could to get her to go down that, uh, down the, the sled. And in the end, we basically had to grab her put her on the sled with mommy and force her to go down. So there she goes. She gets to the bottom and she says, can I do that again? <laughs> now to her, being up at the top was better until she had experienced something better. And I wonder, friend, if your life, trying to fill it with all this meaning and I'm, it's so important what I'm living for and doing. Are you kind of like standing at the top of the hill when God is offering something so much better? I feel like I'm trying to convince, it's like with Madeline, come on, sweetheart, come on. Where you are, there's something better. And that's what God is doing in this world and doing through the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is he is talking to mankind, talking to us here today and saying, there is a life that is available to you that you have not lived yet. There is a peace that is available to you that you have not lived yet. There is an actual freedom from the enslavement and bondage of a fake God that you have not lived in yet. Which brings us to Easter. What is Easter all about, and what I'd like you to consider this year is that Easter is God's personal invitation through Jesus' resurrection to leave the slum and to go to the beach, to go down the hill, to leave the emptiness of the fake God and the fake life and the world that, uh, that tries to convince us that this is really what matters. No, it isn't. You were made for something far better than your car, your job, your bank account, your whatever. You were made for so much more, and friend, you might be missing out. What does it require? Well, we have to dethrone the fake God and to replace it with the real God in our hearts, to enter into a worship relationship with our creator, which is what we were made for. Why should we do that? Here's why. Christ was raised from the dead. If Christ was not raised from the dead, it'd be your idea, my idea, we're all talking about, I think this, I think that, it didn't matter. 
But if Christ was raised from the dead, it means that the supernatural has come into this world. It means that created things are not all that there is. It means there's something greater, somebody greater, if Christ was raised from the dead. And indeed, he was. And I want to encourage you, friend, that the counterfeit God that seems so important to you, I think of young people, so convinced by the world that this and this and this is the important thing. God's way down the list. Jesus, way down the list. I want to go out and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. Really? Well, then you're going to be like all the other people that did the very same thing. And they are despairing and depressed today. Why not live for the one thing that really matters? Why not live for the person that matters? Our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins, was raised to life, defeating death, and now rules at the right hand of God. This is what the Apostle John tells us. He was there, eyewitness, right? He's there in the upper room, here come the women. The body's not there. An angel said that he was risen. Peter and John, they take off running. I love the account John says, because uh, you know, I outran Peter. (laughs) I love that. He probably was younger, uh, and he outruns Peter. And he gets there, and, and there's the empty tomb, and he's not sure what to make of it. He's looking around. Peter finally arrives. He goes in, sees the body's not there, walks away going, what is going on here? John stoops down and looks into that tomb. And John says, seeing that empty tomb, for me, that was enough. That was the moment that he believed. John 20, verse 8. He put his personal faith in Jesus as his Lord and Savior, And after telling the whole story there of that first Easter, he summarizes all of it with this in John 20. Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. And I just, I love that line. As wonderful as what we know about Jesus is, there's so much more that they just didn't include. (laughs) He's even more amazing than we know. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And friends, I want you to, I want you to see something. Notice that he doesn't say that by believing, you may have eternal life in his name, even though that's true. And that's a wonderful truth, eternal life, that when we die physically, for those that are under the grace of God, for those that are followers of Jesus, that there is an existence, a living with God forever, that we go on, right? Eternal life, it's a wonderful truth. But that's not what he says here. That by leaving, you may have life someday in his name is not what he says. That you may have life now. Now. The Christian life is not a someday thing only. It is a now thing. As by believing in Jesus, I am dethroning in my heart the fake and the useless man-made counterfeit God, and I am placing at the throne of my heart the one true God through his son Jesus, which is what I was made for. It's like I'm finally plugged in, all the lights go on, and there is a joy, there is a peace, there is a purpose that now God brings to me that the fake God never could provide. Something better. And I wonder, friend, if today you might not one of those, be one of those insightful, reflective people that as you live in this world, you secretly hope in your heart that this isn't what life is all about. That there must be something 
more. Something better. So what if Jesus was resurrected from the dead, as the eyewitnesses attest? What if the resurrection is God's personal invitation to you to get rid of the fake and to embrace the true and the real and the authentic? And what if that would satisfy the longings of your heart? Life. Life now. I have come to give you life and life more abundantly, is what Jesus said. Could that be hanging out there for you and you haven't tasted it yet? Which brings me to the story of Steve Kellerman, the video that we played earlier in our service. And just to recap it a little bit, Steve is a normal region kind of guy. He grew up here in northwest Indiana. The kind of guy that if you hung out with him, you're like, oh, you went to that school? Okay, I went to this school, and yeah, okay, we kind of, you know, sort of get the region talk and understand each other. Cubs fan, some of you like that, some of you don't, but uh, he was, he's just like a normal guy, okay? Normal guy. Got into business, became successful in business, but slowly, something became too important to him. Did you catch that in the story? Alcohol quit being an occasional pleasure drink and it became something of an escape for him. And then it became a dependency. And then it became a bondage. And like all fake gods, it slowly, maybe imperceptibly to him, took over his life. Because fake gods, like the real God, demand total allegiance and quietly and slowly, it devastated him. And his family loved him. And I was privy to, to this story, walked alongside the family uh, with this. I know the love expressions that were being made to Steve. And the Kellerman family should be commended for the way that they loved him in really dark times in his life. But in spite of family loving him and all the things that were, it was costing him, alcohol was the god of his life. And like money and video games and sex and any other fake God, it slowly took over his life. What was going to save him from that? Well, that's the joyous part of this story. And that's where enter now his niece, uh, Marie, who shares her story in the video that it was like two or three years ago at the Easter services at our church, a message from Ecclesiastes about the, the emptiness of life apart from God, basically the same message as today. That, that she realized that she had been living away from God and she needed to return. She calls herself the prodigal. And she returned, and as God was placed back on the throne of her heart, it gave her a heart for her Uncle Steve. And so she goes to her Uncle Steve to share with him. But by then, alcohol and cancer had decayed his body so badly that no treatment could save him. But Marie wanted him to be free. And so she shares her story. And what Steve realized was that in spite of the fact that what he wanted was another drink, what he needed was for God to be the God of his heart. And that's what he did. He did that by professing Christ. He prayed a prayer of confession of his sins, receiving Jesus as his Lord and 
Savior. He made a faith commitment to Christ. And that commitment usurped the fake God and enthroned the real one at the very end of his life. And I, I love this picture. If we could put it back up again. Here's the, uh, here's the selfie picture they took right after he praised the prayer. And what I love about this is the look on his face, right? He's in hospice. This is not a happy place. And yet, what do you see on his face? Happiness. I see peace. I see a relief, don't you, on his face? And that's a peace, a relief, and a joy that no alcohol can bring. And friends, today, the story of Steve, the the testimony of Romans 1, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ are your opportunity today to do the very same thing. To look at that picture and to look at the joy, to look into your heart. And today, alcohol may not be your God, maybe it is, but what's your alcohol? Who or what is your God? Who are you serving? Who are you looking to for your hope? Who are you really living for? I want you to hear clearly that Jesus' cross and his resurrection are God's personal invitation to leave the slum and the mud pies, to go down the hill, to experience joy and peace, forgiveness of sins, and a real life lived with the God of heaven enthroned in your heart. And it's my prayer that you would make that faith commitment today.